0: Hey, folks, I'm Bernice Chow, host of Asians in Advertising. This is a podcast where we talk about the challenges Asians face in their daily lives and in their career. Today, we have Rohit Tawani. He's a creative director at Media Arts Lab in Los Angeles. Welcome, Rohit. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Can you give me a quick bio about who you are?
1: Who is Rohit? Who am I? I'm a creative director at Media Arts Lab. I am a nigerian born indian man grew up in new jersey uh living out in los angeles been out here for a little over eight or nine years eight years and yeah i'm uh i am just someone that's just likes to make things and you know likes to have weird fun things on the internet that i can both, either make or share and just kind of, uh, you know, living my life for the lulls and uh, trying to get paid for it.
0: What's really interesting to me is you're a strategist when I met you and now you're a creative director. Can you talk about how you went from strategist to creative director?
1: My career began professionally as a waiter and I was a waiter through college and, you know, after college. And then I started selling industrial supplies. I was literally Jim Halpert in the office. And I was like this like long haired brown kid two years after 9-11 uh, or three years after 9-11 going around to the industrial parks of New Jersey trying to sell them paper supplies. And, you know, I would say not all the doors were open to me. I kind of felt a little bit lost. I was like, you know what? I, I need to try and do something. Eventually, then I found an opportunity doing direct marketing for colleges. And then one day, you know, a dear friend of mine, uh, he was partying up in New York and he says, hey, Rohit. You know, I was partying with a friend, ran into some old college friends, and I have a, someone that works in advertising, and she's happy to pass on your resume. You know, fast forward, I'm now working in New York, and I start my first day at uh, a company called MediaVest, and the client was Coca-Cola. This is the dream job. And so um, first day comes in, and I meet my new boss, Tracy, she was like, hey, I'm going to, you know, show you how to do this and this and this. I'm going to meet you on the team. i was like, cool, I wrote some scripts. I know, I know I don't really know what's happening here, but yeah, it's Coca-Cola. So I figured I'd get a head start. She's like, why are you writing scripts? And I was like, well, we're Coke's ad agency, right? She's like, we're in media. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, because nobody on the interview bothered to talk to me about what actual media is. So then I was in media for five years. And then I, you know, I was doing a bunch of creative stuff and I was like, you know, I came up with the internet's first ever UGC homepage takeover on MySpace, did all this cool stuff with gaming. You know, I became kind of like a good partner to people at like Crispin Porter and, you know, some people at and it was kind of like their guy, their inside guy. It was kind of fun. And then I finally got a job at BBDO. And I'm like, okay, cool. Time to create. And then my boss chatted at the time. He's like, cool. Can you write the brief? I'm like, I don't even know what a brief is. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, your digital strategies. Like, I don't really actually even know what that means. I was like, but I'm working at a creative agency. Let's do creative. He's like, no, that's not what you do. So then what I did, I was just doing my day job as much as I could do my day job, but then still writing work, selling work, pitching work, and partnering with the other creatives or just, you know, kind of doing my own things. And I had a bunch of stuff that eventually got made, stuff that almost got made. And it was It was nice to be able to do that and to kind of, you know, I had to fight for those opportunities. And my my career was always trying to be like, I was placed in the wrong place or I put myself into the wrong place. I met you as a strategist, but a strategist that was a very reluctant strategist. And I think I did a solid seven out of 10 of my job, of the strategist job, maybe six and a half. And I really tried to over-index in the other place. And when I moved over to Media Arts Lab um, to help with, you know, some of the social creative and all that kind of stuff, eventually, you know, Brent Anderson, the CCO there, you know, he pulled me into the department and eventually I worked my way, up, and now I'm a creative director. Long story short, I just did the job that I wanted until I got the job I wanted.
0: I mean, I love that you kept pushing scripts like the, yeah. like you told me about 15 years in which you weren't a creative that you kept trying to bring scripts to the table yeah and it's funny that you now are on the creative side which i think is amazing because that's where your true calling was obviously worth
1: i love it i mean it's it's one thing that i always kind of did and this is something that i recommend to anybody that feels like hey i'm not doing the job that i want to but i have this job that i'm good at that i can do is Honestly, two things. Just one, do the job anyway. Even if nobody's asking to you, just spend the extra time and just do it. And eventually you'll break through. But also make it known. Tell people. Let people know about your intentions.
0: That's great. I love that you just made the transition and it took you a while, but you got there in the end. And now like you're the creative director at Mald working on Apple. Uh, Can you tell us anything about you've worked on lately?
1: After years and years of launching iPhones and having a lot of fun, a lot of success on that. You know, I wanted to try something new. So I've been working on Apple TV for the past few years, launching a bunch of the Apple TV Plus programming. It's been kind of great because going from launching hardware, very celebrated hardware, you know, like iPhone is one of the biggest launches every year in the consumer product space. Um, that means a lot of eyeballs are on it. And it means that there's a lot of things that you have to make sure you're doing. And it was great doing that. And I have now a team that I've like, you know, grown and raised and... Now trust, and I was like, okay, you guys can like really do this yourself this year, and then I wanted to try new things that can kind of expand my creativity. And I think TV and entertainment is just such a weird, wild place. One, it's so like you only have to worry about it for a few months, that which means you can take a bunch of risks. You have talent, and studios are just like, hey, we want to make a big splash. Let's do something crazy and weird. And so I'm starting to like. Find new ways in there.
0: Are you actually launching the television shows, the Apple mm-hmm. TV proprietary shows? Mm-hmm. Okay, very mm-hmm. cool.
1: Yeah, so I launched, uh, you know, the morning show, Sea Servant, the Beastie Boys uh, documentary. There's been a, there's been a few, and I'm working on a couple now. Um, one by the time our listeners hear this, it'll be out there, and hopefully everybody likes it. But it's Isaac Asimov's Foundation, which is you know based on the seminal novels that inspired Dune. Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, that was, they're the God, you know, Foundation is the godfather of sci fi. And it's great for me to get a chance, being a big sci fi fan, to get a chance to work on that stuff professionally and get paid for it. And, you know, I'm working some other ideas with some great creators and um, where I can't believe I'm being allowed to make some of the stuff.
0: That's really cool. I can't wait to see your work. With that in mind, how have your cultural experiences affected you?
1: When I was two and a half, my father and mother, um, we moved from Nigeria to New Jersey and my dad was finishing his master's in computer science and, you know, he's retiring this year, but he's been working doing crazy cool, like, you know, computer engineering stuff for the government and, uh, for, you know, since the eighties. And he wanted to make sure, both my parents wanted to make sure that we went to, you know, good schools and that ended up being 12 years of Catholic school and we're not Catholic. And as a child, I mean, I had this weird, you know, this one weird story growing up in a Hindu household, um, going to Catholic school. And I remember we second grade and I got in trouble with my teacher because we were talking about Easter and, you know, how Christ came back um, after Easter. You know, he rose from the dead. And as an innocent child in second grade, I raised my hand. I said, nobody actually believes this, right? And... So there was just comic book stuff because I didn't believe any of the Hindu stuff. I didn't believe any of this. I thought everybody was just kind of in on it. You know, it's like, oh, that wasn't great because now that's like you have one kid denying religion in front of other kids that are st- still, many of them believe in Santa. And so it was just this, that was the blossoming, I think, of my understanding of myself as an outcast. And my mom gave me a very hard lesson, my brother and I, a really hard lesson that it hurt when we were kids to hear, but I think it's one of the most valuable lessons that she said. And she said, When you are going to school here, you're always going to be an outsider. You're always gonna be the Indian outsider. When you go visit family in India, you're always gonna be the American outsider. You will always be an outsider. And that hurt to hear as a kid, because all you want to do as a kid is fit in. You want to be invited to play. You don't want to be the one left on the playground or the one people make fun of. And I got made fun of like crazy, you know, being like the only brown kid around for miles um, in a very Irish and Catholic school. It was not easy. And kids, they're cruel. And sometimes even their parents are cruel. There was a moment where I pivoted, where I was just trying to fit in, trying to fit in, always just wishing I could fit in, wishing I could be white. You know, because when you're white, things are so much easier and because there's you already removed that one layer of like, oh, here's that someone's with a weird name or with a different skin color. I have assumptions about them. I know either what kind of food they like or how much their house probably smells or how unathletic they are or how about they're good at math. When you see a white person, you actually don't assume many things. And it's hard to carry that when you're a child. And after a while, I think it was probably sixth grade, seventh grade, but then really freshman year, of high school, I was like, "Fuck it!" Can I? I'm sorry, I can't curse. Yeah, you can. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was like, "Fuck it!" I'm just gonna <laughs> embrace this because if I'm different, I'm just gonna own it. And freshman year, I ran for uh, you know freshman student government, and I was like, "I'm not gonna be tired," you know, "I'm not gonna be embarrassed by my name. I'm gonna be Vohit for Rohit." That was my campaign slogan. Undefeated. You know, it's my it's my. These days, my Twitter handle, it's my everything. You ever want to find me? It's Vohit, V-O-H-I-T, the number four, Rohit. So Vohit for Rohit became a thing. And at this point, I embraced myself being different. And, I, I, and that actually then started to blossom my creativity. In class... I was like, I was just maybe over indexing, but like we had to do like vocabulary in freshman year. And I just would, when we had to like read definitions uh, in front of the class every week when we go around and I, all mine would just be absurdist and crazy. And, and first my teacher was like, what are you saying? You can't say this stuff in freshman year, you know, English class. And then eventually it just became like something him and all the whole class looked forward to. And I just always did everything to kind of make myself laugh because And make myself happy, and that was just kind of just being exactly who I felt on the inside, and I don't care what it looked like on the outside. And then in the end, all of a sudden, I started gravit. People started gravitating, I guess, towards me, and I had a lot of friends and all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of where I think the creativity started. And Bernice, I don't even remember your question that you.
0: (laughs) No, you're answering perfectly. How your cultural experience has affected, you know, your career today, and I, I see a lot of that similarities because you were in a very very white environment. And Mm. I think advertising as a whole is a very white environment. And you do have to kind of stand out, whether that's with your humor. You have to kind of brand yourself in a way just so you kind of get noticed because we do physically get noticed, but not for those leadership positions, right? Mm -hmm. It's like people don't see that talent in you when you're all these other assumptions. So I love that you talked about how a white person gets a blank slate, whereas if you're another cultural, you're just like, oh, that person that hopefully can speak English or hopefully can present. And
1: that's the crazy thing. I wanted to be known for something other than being brown when that's all I had to see. My name, like the way I looked, everything. Like the weird lunches I bring to school, all I'd be known as brown. And I even still face some of that today. I mean, when I started professionally, my career, I feel pretty certain, you know, if I was to have the exact same resume as, you know, one of my best friends, his name is Bob Burke. If on paper we're to put our resumes in, I know for a fact what that HR person is going to pick up first, you know, a Rohit Thawani or a Bob Burke. And bless him, he's way smarter than me. So he deserves all the more jobs than I ever do. But but I think I've always taken that. And I think that, especially as we mentioned, you know, I graduated right after 9-11. The job market was not necessarily easy and not necessarily open. So I had to do everything I could to surpass my color. And that's not necessarily, does not mean I'm ashamed of being brown. I'm very proud of being brown. Because also one thing, it lets me make a lot of inappropriate jokes because I got my minority armor, which I'm going to always, like, you know, I'm going to own that. It's pretty great.
0: Before we start a recording, you mentioned that you like to hire Trojan horses. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: When I hire people, when I bring people in, I hire a lot of people that are, are sometimes unqualified. Unqualified because, hey, their book might not be as extensive. Or unqualified because, you know, they might not have the right type of hardware, you know, for, you know, advertised people people, these are can lions and this and that. But I do see, there's things that I do look for. And I look for people that just come in with such a really distinct POV and just, like, one thing that they are so good at. And that could just be something like, hey, I'm a great, like, you know, I make cool like flashy animations or I'm like a really big gamer. I understand that space understand streaming, I all that kind of stuff. Like someone, something that in the world of creativity, especially in my realm in terms of digital creativity, they are so good at. And if I can sense that they have that excellence, but also that, that they're creators in that own world, to me, that's amazing. But what I'll do is I will bring in people that have, like I have people on my team that have, that are high performers. You know, some people have come in just from just other routes that weren't necessarily, uh, traditional advertising creatives and when I do that and every time I hire one of these people I feel like I'm bringing somebody in and the expectations are really tempered and then they start blowing people away and what that means is the little tunnel of coming from the non- traditional creative space where we kind of have to crawl through on, on you know, hands and knees, um, kind of like those, you know, those air vents and the air ductings and like the spy movies, right? Those are turning into walkways. And I'm just trying to expand that because the more and more people I can get in through those vents and they, when they come out the other side, people are like, oh my God, this person's amazing. That, that my whole thing is that means there's more people like me, more people like them. And we're just growing that type of practice in that group. And creativity has to come from many places and i mean there's a saying that goes i don't even know who says it i think a million people say it it takes sand to make a pearl and an oyster and sometimes when you add a little bit of friction in terms of what types of creatives you're bringing in and just like challenge them and show people hey this new way of thinking's great then i think nice things have happened i hope i think the results have been good thus far um but yeah i'm always looking out for people that aren't given the same opportunities.
0: I love that you're paying it forward back to people with that same drive that you have.
1: Yeah, because I mean, it's fun to see somebody that is just like (laughs) dying to get in. And I mean, like I said, everyone on my team has Asked. They've all are none of them are, are traditional creatives. Um that you know, from this core team that have just been so successful. You know, one's an artist that was exhibiting at Art Basel and just doing stuff for rappers and all those crazy stunts. Um, you know him. Actually, you might know his brother, uh, David Strada is his brother. So Carlos is was one of these guys. And, and you know, and so all these people come they've all asked and they all say, I want to be part of your team. I want to do that, I want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, Okay. That's the first step. Cool. You made it known. I've seen your drive. Dude, I will help you do whatever you want to do. Just let it be known and just work hard and and just come in with something different.
0: That's great. You also have your own podcast as well called The Hopeless Show. What's that about?
1: I would say a month or two before the quarantine, before COVID all went, um, a dear friend of mine named Aaron Wolf, he's a filmmaker, director, actor. He reached out to me and we kind of formulated this idea that we both were kind of, I think, dancing around for a while. And really the idea is there's so much hopelessness out in the world. Every time you turn on the news, there's tribalism, there's war, there's just people hating each other. There's, there's a lot of bad stuff. And so our show is about two people that are highly unqualified to be talking about all of these topics, bringing hope to those topics. And it's, you know, there's a lot of comedy in the show. And every week, it's a one-hour episode. We just recorded our 60th. Wow. Yeah, and we've been recording pretty much every week since the quarantine started, almost every week. And, you know, our our listenership has been doing, you know, been growing each week. And it's it's, it's kind of like therapy for both of us because we both are just seeing all this stuff happen in the world and it's just it's an hour for us to talk about them and we've had guests we've had you know like alec baldwin we've had like you know they're all through him um through my buddy aaron from being in the industry but regardless it's it's its just a weekly way for anybody that listens even if you're not interested in whatever topics we're talking about well will inform you about them as far as we can figure them out and then just try and bring a bit a little bit of hope and sometimes the solutions we bring are Awful. Um, And just really, you know, or just humorous, but I think they're genuine. And yeah. So if anybody's interested, The Hopeless Show, it's available on, you know, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, Apple, everything, whatever you want.
0: I like that you bring hope to all these subjects.
1: Yeah. It's there's a lot. there's There's a lot of hope that's needed in this world.
0: I completely agree. So what is one last piece of advice you would give to someone that's coming up in the industry or someone that comes from the same Cultural experience background that you have that you're like want to champion with words of advice here?
1: Oh man, I don't, Bernice, I don't know if I have one word of advice. I'm just going to try and spit some out. Sure. Let's just see where this goes. <laughs> the first bit of advice is not everyone is as talented as you think or as you fear. There is, like, I don't think I'm that good, to be honest. And I think I'm pretty good. I don't think I'm great. And I think maybe that's what keeps me going, but I can tell you that that same insecurity is shared by a lot more decorated people than myself. And don't take your insecurity as a reflection of your skills. Take your insecurity as a commonality between you and the most successful people. Because if you feel... Like, you can get better. That means you can. But that also means you need to keep proving yourself. So I think, like, the first step is people are like, oh, I don't know if I could ever get a job there. I don't know if I could ever do that. I don't know if I'm good enough. Honestly, nobody ever does. And there was a um, Troy Ruhanen. He's, I think, CEO or something of TBWA. I've known him for a long time. And we were hanging, you know, we were, like, at the CES convention and in Las Vegas. And we were just talking and, and over dinner or something. And I was like, you're never tired. And he's like, he's like, every day I wake up. I look in the mirror and I'm surprised. I keep forgetting I'm not 18. And then we started talking and he was saying like, even people at the highest, highest levels are always questioning their decisions they are always like, everybody is, is like, has this sort of uncertainty if they're good, if they're great, if they're the right person. And I think that's okay. And that's good. That means that you having the same kinds of emotions of everybody from every level. And the first step, and Then And then the next bit is just making it known. If you want to do something, make it known and do it, do it without people asking you. And, Eventually, they're going to ask you for it and because you keep producing it. And then eventually that's going to be what you're doing. So dress for the job that you want. Just make your intentions known. Do your job. And it's totally, totally okay to be down on yourself. And it's totally okay to question your abilities because the best of them do. And the more you question yourself, that means the more opportunities it is for you to perfect things. Every time you question yourself, if you're good at something, that's one thing that you can get better at. And that's just a brief to yourself. And so I think all that stuff's great. You know, use that as as your and use your and use your perceived weaknesses as your strength. If you're someone that that has a difference that you feel might negatively hamper it, make that difference your strength. And you're going to be really surprised with just how many people will be gravitating towards that and be looking for that.
0: I think that's actually a remarkable piece of advice to just live and breathe what you really want to do and then one day you will get noticed for it. Rohit, thank you so much for coming in today. It was such a treat to see you again in person after all these years and to talk to you about your career and your journey. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And if your day could use a little bit more hope, check out Rohit's podcast, The Hopeless Show, streaming wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more, visit us at asiansandadvertising.com, and we'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.